So good morning, guys. Good to be back. Since I was last here, I hope you guys had a good Christmas. I got to have a kickboxing match right before Christmas. Didn't get my teeth kicked in, which I appreciate. It's always good not to get knocked down from my wife. So that was a blessing. That would be an awkward Christmas to talk for the next week. So had a good Christmas, good holidays. I'm happy to be back here. Glad to get invited back by Tim to come preach. And never know after the first time I preach if you're going to get invited back. But we are in Luke 23. Um, and as I was studying this, I, I try to think of different ways to convey the text, but something that came to me while I was praying for this, while I was going over this passage, and this is um, kind of a more popular passage. It's the thieves on the cross with Jesus. It made me think of this scene uh, in a small movie called The Dark Knight. So in this film, they're at this point where there's two boats, a boat with civilians and a boat with criminals. And they're both told by the main you know, antagonist, Joker, that they have a trigger, each of them. And there's bombs on each boat. So if the criminals blow up the civilian boat, they're allowed to live. If the civilians blow up the criminal's boat, they're allowed to live. If no one pulls the trigger, they all die. And this is why Joker's such a good antagonist, just to pit people against each other. So that, saying the scene there, that's where they're at. And you have the civilians who think they're the good guys, and the criminals, who of course have it coming. And the scene, the thing I like about the scene is it gets resolved because of course um, they have plot devices to make the hero win and things that aren't reasonable and they fix it in the end. But one of the criminals comes up, takes the trigger, and you think he's gonna pull it to kill the civilians. Because of course he's a criminal, he's a dirtbag. He has it coming. Of course he wants to kill civilians, he's a bad guy. And he throws the trigger out the window. And he goes and sits down, bows his head, almost praying, accepting that most likely he's going to die. And here's why. It's funny, because this movie is about a hero. It's not about the Bible. It's not about the Bible whatsoever. But he knew something. He knew a reality. He knew he was guilty. He knew he had it coming. And, and he didn't even know if the civilians would kill him, but he knew if they did, he probably deserved it. He knew he wasn't the hero. He's not. He's there for a reason. He wasn't being self-righteous. And that's where we find ourselves today in Luke 23. We have the criminals on the cross. If there's one thing I want you to remember today, just, just one thing, if, if you forget the rest of what I said, any Greek words, anything else, there's one hero and there's one hope. When we read this passage, one hero, one hope. You're not going to see good phrases from Oprah. You're not going to see a catchphrase that gets you through a day or the prayer of, of you know, Jabez or whatever. There's one hero, and it's not you. There's one hope, and that also is not you. And we're going to see it again and again in the passage, and it's a theme throughout the Bible. There are people who do heroic things in the Bible. There's people God uses mildly, but there's that word, people. In the end, they're still humans. They are broken. They are flawed. They are not the hero. I've heard people say, like, man, you need to be like David. Be a husband like David? Be a dad like David? What, what are we talking? I mean, if you're talking fighting, he was great. He was not a good dad. Good uh, you should be strong like Samson. Strong when he was with prostitutes or strong when he was drunk. or so. Which one? And it's not to bash on them. We all have flaws. But the Bible is not about a bunch of nice people saying nice quotes and that we just need to try harder and be like David and be like Samson. We need to be like Jesus. He's the hero. 
If Samson is the hero, are you kidding me? His last prayer is not even repentance. He says, God, help me kill all these people I hate. That's his last prayer before he dies. King David sleeps with the wife of one of his most trusted soldiers. One of his most trusted soldiers, and then has him murdered. It's the, yes, God did amazing things through him, but that's the key. God did amazing things through them. It wasn't that David had a nice workshop. It wasn't that Jonathan was part, you know, of a, of a nice accountability group. It was God. And those aren't even bad things, but they're not the hero. I'm not the hero. That's our thing. The idea of celebrity pastor, that's a joke. That should not exist. It, what? The focus is Jesus. So one hero, one hope. Luke 23, good morning for those who are just attending for the first time. <laughs> Welcome. They're like, I haven't even had coffee, and the shaved head dude is yelling at me. <laughs> All right. So Luke 23, and there's going to be a few things we see through this. I promise at the end of this passage, you will have hope. It will be joyful, so don't worry. But here's how we're going to see this. One, we are helpless. We can't save ourselves. It is not trying harder. You can't say, you know, enough prayers, do enough good deeds. Two, we're hostile. We're not just lost. The Bible says we're enemies of God. And three, we're hopeless. And not in the fact that God can't save us or we're irredeemable, but in the fact that left to ourselves, we don't have hope. There are dark things in this world, there are broken things in this world, and without God, there isn't hope. I want, I want to just point this out real quick, especially if you're investigating. If there's no God, and all there is is this world and it's suffering, then the Holocaust, that, that, how, how is that ever redeemed? The tyrants, the dictators, Stalin. I mean, you look at, if there is no God, all it is is a world of chaos and random chance, and one day you'll die. You'll maybe be poor, you'll maybe be rich, we all end up in the dirt. But if there's a God, so that's the thing, when I say we are hopeless, if there isn't a God, we are hopeless. We are helpless, hostile, hopeless, and God is the one hero, the one hope. He is the one. In the Bible, ultimately, this is what we're going to see in this passage, and through every passage, that Jesus is the only one without flaws, he's the only one without sin, and he's the only one who can help. That's it. So, Luke 23, good morning, verse 32. Let's get into it. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place as called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So here we see first reason why Jesus is the one hero and the one hope, and that's we are helpless. I'm going to set the scene. So we have three men walking their death. They're hated. They're condemned. They seem helpless, and for two of them, that's true. Jesus is the only one among them who, if he wanted to, could save himself right now. Um, these men most likely were there for either robbery or murder or some high crime. And here's the thing. Jesus, out of those three, is the only one who's planned this. In fact, he submitted to us. I want you to realize before beginning a time, he determined this would happen. The tree that the cross would be made of, he created. 
even the shackles or any bondage they had. The beating he would take was by fists that he designed, spoke into existence. Even the nails piercing his skin, made of material that, that he spoke into existence. He is the only one who planned to be there. The only one who's not helpless he has submitted himself to this execution. And there's a bigger picture here I don't want us to miss. This passage is actually a great story of the redemption story as a whole. I mean, to sum up most of the Bible. Humanity walking to its death, rightfully condemned, guilty, helpless, beaten, looking down at the crying out for a savior. And unlike Zeus, unlike Allah, our God is in the midst of it, walking with humanity to their death, walking with humanity to the grave. And not to be beaten by it, but to redeem them and rescue them from it. So there's a beautiful picture here. He isn't some distant, uncaring God. He personally comes down from a seat of power to be humbled, to become human, and in humanity's darkest hour, walks with us right up to our time of judgment and rescues us. That's the beauty of this passage. This is not just some nice quote you say or, or something to, you know, cheer up someone when something bad happens. Which, by the way, when someone's mourning, just throwing verses at them out of context, not helpful. Mourn with them. Lament with them. But once again, he's in the midst of their suffering, taking our punishment, freeing us from the wrath sin deserves, and saving us for a greater future. These two criminals are being mocked and spit on, hated by a crowd. Jesus is right there with them, bearing the insults. Because while we, we are helpless, Jesus is still completely in control. He planned it all. How beautiful. And here's the thing. The beautiful story is these, these criminals, the worst of worst, they're not, if they trust in Jesus, if they repent, they're not just saved from hell and saved from wrath. They're saved for a future, a new heaven, new earth. He doesn't just save you from sin and then say, good luck, have fun. He saves you for a future. It says in Revelation, new heaven, new earth, we will reign with him in perfection, in health. No more war, no more pain, no more suffering. So he's in the suffering, personally experiencing it. While we are helpless, he is still completely in control. And look at verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He still has, in the midst of suffering and sin, the greatest power of all, the power to forgive sins, the greatest power in the universe, the power to pardon sinners, to make enemies friends. In the midst of this, he's not some pay god like Zeus zapping him with lightning the second they get out of line. In the midst of that suffering, he's saying, forgive them. They don't know what they do. These lost little children, forgive them. It says, keep going. Verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed down, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So here's our second reason. We're hostile. Hostile towards God, towards his law, towards his authority. And this is a common misconception of, well, the Bible has good people and bad people. No, it has broken, lost people and has redeemed people. It has 
bad people and really bad people. It has those who submit to the authority of Jesus and those, sadly, who will kneel to Jesus at the day of judgment by force. It has those destined to be in the new heaven, new earth, and those destined for eternal punishment. And I think that's easy. And I get, I get, different sin has different earthly consequences. I get that. But if you're going to hell for robbery, you're going to hell for murder. It's a, you're both going to hell. If I'm drowning in 20 feet of water and they're drowning in 30 feet of water, we're both dead. It, it doesn't matter. It's this whole idea of, well, I'm a good guy and they're the bad people. We're lost and we need Jesus. There's only redeemed people or sadly those who will face Jesus at the end in judgment. So we're hostile. It says we're enemies of God. And look at this. So verse 36, the soldiers mocked him. Verse 37, if you are king of Jews, save yourself. Verse 39, the criminals, are you not the Christ? The leaders scoffed at him. Everyone hostile. The son of God, the ch- God's son, and they are spitting on him, laughing at him, mocking him. He could destroy them. He could snap his fingers, and a legion of angels just decapitates and just obliterates them. But no. Save yourself and us. If you're Jesus, if you're so good, we're hostile. Now, some people might respond at this point by saying, well, at least the other criminal does the right thing and defends Jesus. You know, they, they might say, well, you know, he, he did the right thing. He says, you know, Jesus, I, I'm guilty. You know, you're innocent. Forgive me. And he does. Later in the passage, he does. Here's the problem. Um, when you take verses out of context or only read parts of the Bible, you can come up with whatever story you want. But the sad thing is, if you read the Bible as a whole, it doesn't always fit with our misconceptions or preconceived notions. Look at Matthew 27, 44. Okay, real quick. And this will be the only time we kind of jump around. Tim, I appreciate how many little notes you have in your Bible, man. It's actually really helpful. I almost want to read some of them, but... Okay. 27.44. I want you to look at the verbiage here. And listen to this. Verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Plural. The robbers who were crucified with him. Both of them cursed Jesus. Now, at some point, the other robber apparently repented. At some point, he turned to Jesus. But look, at there wasn't a good robber and a bad robber. And let me point this out. They were both being crucified. They did something. Something led to this situation. Like something went down. You don't just end up on a cross. Both those dudes had done some... They had seen some things. They'd either murdered or robbed, done something. To say, well, he, he, wasn't, he was the less bad murderer. You're a murderer. They were on the cross for a reason. And it shows in the beginning, they both were cursing at him. It wasn't that the noble thief was like, no, Jesus, I'll defend you. And spoke up for him. He was cursing him in the beginning. Robbers, plural. And some people might go, well, I don't really like that. It's not the story. I didn't write it. That God wrote this Bible, and he shows even that guy was broken. Even the guy who he wants it, well, be like the good robber. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus, and we'll fail and we'll fall, but we pursue him. Even he was hostile towards him. 
Both of these criminals cursed Jesus. And the beauty of the gospel is this. This is the one story where the hero comes to save the villain. It's, it's crazy. You don't see this in any... People try to say, oh, your belief system is the same as others. No. Zeus does not die for his creation. He's petty and he's selfish. Even my friends who believe in Islam, I've talked to them, Allah to them is this far-off God. To say he intimately knows me and cares about me, they go, eh. These other gods are petty and selfish and stupid. They're like humans because humans created them. This story is so ridiculous and so crazy, it has to be true. What God does is, what God comes down and saves the villain. Who repays their enemy by loving him? And who lives forever by dying? Who wins by being defeated? Who gets glory by being humbled? It's ludicrous. And it's true. It's 100% completely true. He comes to save the villain. Despite this hate towards him, Jesus stays on the cross. And remember that. He chose to stay on the cross. He chose that. It's not like at some point he went, oh, well, I can't back out now. He would have had every right to obliterate everyone in front of him. Every right. If I wrote the Bible, Jesus and John Wick would have taken out everyone in front of him immediately. Especially any Pharisees who did something to a dog. Like, immediately. But that's because I'm human. And the way I was raised, if someone did something to you, you did something back to such a severity that they never thought of retaliating. That's not Jesus. Who does this? Who, who loves these broken, angry villains, suffering man after man? Anyone who's ever had their shoulder dislocated? Or, or been stabbed or been hurt or had something pierced the most? Has anyone stepped on a Lego? <laughs> or been hit in the funny bone or something like that? Yeah, he has. There you go. This guy gets it. He chose to. He didn't have to. He doesn't need us. He is not insecure, and he needs your worship. He wants you. He wants you. What a crazy story, and yet completely true. But let's continue, because I told you there's a good ending. I want to actually give you a good ending. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this is the important part. He said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So here's our last point. And it's what I think spoke to this criminal. It's that we're hopeless. What changed between that moment when the thief was cursing Jesus and this moment? And there's lots of debate. Some people think it's when Jesus said, forgive them, and maybe the thief heard that. Some people think the thief was just so broken that maybe the spirit even opened his eyes and he realized his situation. But one thing is, it seems in this passage that the reality of his hopelessness hit him too. He's bleeding to death, and as a dying man, he looks to another dying man and begs him to, to remember him, to forgive him. He looks over and realizes he deserved this. He was a guilty man bleeding to death, hopeless, helpless, hostile, and looking over realizes Jesus was his only hope. 
That was it. He didn't take communion. He didn't do baptism. He didn't say a special prayer. He was a dying sinner who looked at Jesus. And this is his only theology. I'm guilty. You're not. Remember me. That was all his theology. It's not bad to study theology. It's not bad to go to seminary. But sometimes we forget the simpleness and the beauty of the gospel of, I'm not God, but you are. And it's not some special prayer. You are submitting to the king of the cosmos. He doesn't become king once you repent. It's not like, okay, God, I say you're king, so I'll repent. No, you're acknowledging an already true reality. He's king whether you acknowledge it or not. And I don't even like necessarily accepting him into your heart. No, you're surrendering to your Lord. He already owns your heart. You're just admitting the reality. My wife doesn't suddenly like, oh, today I said you're my wife. No, she's my wife. She reminds me every day she is my wife. That's, that's true. Whether I don't, it's a reality. This thief brings nothing to the table but his brokenness and sin. Begging another dying man to remember him. And here's the thing. We aren't the hero of the story, and that's okay. That's okay. We don't have to feel ashamed of that. If you believe in God, you're a child of God. You're an heir. Legitimately, Jesus has taken the wrath and shame of your sin and all Jesus' righteousness attributed to you where God sees you and everything Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection, he attributes to you. You don't have to feel shame about it. And you don't have to carry the weight of being the hero. You can't. This passage means so much to me because I did not become a Christian at Bible college. I was next to criminals in a cell where I deserved to be. And I see this passage and go, Jesus can save even someone like me. He wants you. He loves you. He knows you. And you can believe in him. This should give us hope. Do you really want that weight of, okay, I'll be the hero. Okay, cool. All you have to do is be perfect. Never mess up. Die for the world. Rescue them. Do miracles. Cool. I don't want that burden. I can't be. And if you look in the Bible, none of them did either. And that's what was great about David. Not David, the God he followed. That's what was great about Samson. Not Samson, his insecurities, but the faith he had in the Lord. That's what was great about Caleb and all, was their God. They were great men because they had a great God. The women in the Bible, so, when you hear them speak, they're prophesying, speaking poetry, telling these amazing worship songs of a great God. And all of these heroes, the ones who we love reading about, had one thing in common. Their life pointed to God. David wouldn't want you worshiping David. Samson wouldn't want you worshiping Samson. And if you asked Paul, he wouldn't say, be more like Paul. He'd point to Jesus. He's the one hero. He's the one hope. And that brings us joy. That it's done. It doesn't rely on us. You now have the freedom not to every day go, am I killing it? Am I doing it right? Am I following everything? Am I doing my devotionals? Am I earning my way to heaven? No, it's done. He wins. You go to Revelation, amazing book. There's dragons. If anyone's interested, dragons. Amazing book. And he wins. And it's not maybe. It's not possibly. It's determined. He wins. It's done. He has victory. There's not a doubt. And you can wake up every morning knowing that going, We've won. I'm saved. And there will be a new heaven, new earth. Everything you saw in the news when you see war and death 
and poverty, it'll be gone. You can one day, you can look at that and go, one day you'll be a lie. One day you won't exist anymore. Is anyone in here tired of hearing about children dying? Anyone? Done. Racism, hate, just anything, even Christians being killed, done. And that's certain. Why wouldn't that give us hope? Why do we end the story at, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, period. Yes, and gave you a future, a new heaven, new earth. All of you will be redeemed. You're not the hero, thank God. If I had to rely on you, I love you people, if I had to rely on you to be my hero, if I have to rely on one of you to evangelize me and save me, you're the one who's going to save me, what if you missed the bus that day? What if you sleep in? What if you chose that day you didn't feel like it? But thank God I have a sovereign God who says, no, I've said he's saved. Not because you want him. So I say he's saved, so he will be saved. And loves me more than my individualism or what I feel he needs to accommodate. He said, no, I've chosen you to be saved. Thank God I'm not God. There is one hero, there is one hope, and it's Jesus. And here's my invitation. I say this every sermon. If you're not a Christian, you've just let me yell at you for 30 minutes. Your Sundays are, you're already here. What's five more minutes of your time to pray to God? Look, if, if, if it turns out I'm wrong, you go home. But if you pray today and say, Jesus, are you real? And he reveals himself to you. If you repent and you become a Christian, this is true. You can't go back. You'll know now. And it will change your life. You've already given me this time. You've already heard me out. Just pray. Worst case scenario, I'm wrong. You go, okay, that guy was full of it. All right, go home, watch Netflix. But if I'm right, this does matter. This does mean everything. And it means more than your sensibilities or views or insecurities. It'll be everything. It'll change you. Please pray with me. God, you are the one hero and the one hope. You are it. And I thank you that you die even for the villain. That you are a good and faithful God even when we are not. I pray for everyone here and that you would call those by your spirit to be saved. And I pray to you, Father, in the name of King Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. Amen.